Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 13 to 17, as we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. If you were to try, I, did I say 13? I meant 1 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 13, sorry. If you were to try to work to unite a church that was divided, um, how would you do it? You know, what would you say to them? What would you teach them? What doctrines would you focus on? And I think almost immediately what we would say to one another is, well, I wouldn't focus on a doctrine, you know, because doctrine is what divides and Christ unites. And so I'd say, well, just assuming that doctrine had either some divisive or unitive capacity, truth, all right? Let's say that truth attacked, divides, and truth embraced, unites. Let's just say as a thought experiment <laughs> that that were true, that, that, that error divides, truth unites. What truths would you open up if you were trying to unite a church that was divided? I know it's very difficult for us today to think that truth does anything but divide. Uh, but actually, it is always truth that unites and error divides. And you say, well, who's error? And I say God's. And you say, well, there you go again. Divide it. And I say, yes, and that is what this table does. This table divides, on the one hand, all those who do not worship the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins, and all those who do. This table divides. Baptism divides into those who have died to their sin, to their slavery to Satan, and been raised in new life in Jesus Christ. Baptism divides. But on the side of those who are united in Christ, there is perfect unity through the doctrine of the exclusive salvific work of Jesus Christ. In other words, you're here because you believe or you're considering placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's a doctrine and it unites us. And then we work out from it. And so Paul is dealing with a church that's divided. That's schismatic, it's fractious, it's, it's a church at war among its members. And he deals with specific doctrines, specific propositions today. And I want us to note that these Opening these things up is the way that he leads this church back to unity. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 13 through 17. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. This is the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul begins these verses by asking a rhetorical question. He says, has Christ been divided? And the answer 
is expected. It's assumed, and the answer is no. Christ has not and cannot be divided. Going on, it was not Paul who was crucified for the Corinthians, nor were they baptized into his name. No, no, and no are the answers, the only answers any sane person would give to these three questions. And yet, this was what the Corinthians were trying to do. They were splitting into factions, trying to break apart, to rip apart the household of faith, the church of the living God. Christ himself cannot be divided. There's only one Jesus Christ, and he can't be split up so that part of him is a a champion for this party and another part of him is a champion for another party. And if it's contrary to the nature of marriage, a contrary to the nature of families and households to be split up, and many of you know it is contrary to nature. If it's contrary to the nature of marriage and households to be split up, how much more is it contrary to the nature of the body of Christ, the church, the household of faith to be split up? The head of the body is one. And so the members of the body, the parts of the body, are one also. Now think about Bob Kapowitz in our midst. He has cerebral palsy. And so because of his physical defect, his body struggles against... You see the members. He tries to be helpful when he's being fed, right? And when he's eating, he wants to eat. But his his head will turn away from him. It will bash into the spoon, right? Because... His mind is not united in its leadership of the body, and so the members of his body contend against each other. That's why he has trouble speaking. That's why he has to have men serving him all the time. Now, think if it were a body here, and and all of us were to like have different parts of the brain, different parts of Jesus Christ, and we were struggling against each other. Well, Christ is one. And if he is the head... And he is perfect. The head perfectly unites the members of the body. Perfectly unites the members of the body. Christ has not been divided. He cannot be divided. No one was baptized into Paul. Everyone was baptized into the name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And thus, in the name of Jesus Christ, he is our only Savior and Lord. And then the Apostle Paul opens up the matter a little more, saying in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. So the Apostle Paul here clearly sees it as a kindness of God that he didn't get caught up in baptizing a bunch of people. It's part of God's providence that he just baptized very few of them. Why? Well, so they couldn't claim him to be their hero, the one into whom they were baptized, all right? He baptized so few of them that he wasn't, he he didn't do enough people to to, to have a, a part of the division owned by him. Now, it's interesting at this point that the correction that he just that he makes in verse 16 he says i thank god i baptized none of you except crispus and gaius and then verse 16 now i did baptize also the household of stephanus beyond that i don't know whether i baptized any other there's two interesting things there number 1 it's clear that paul 
as he either dictated or have somebody else write or himself wrote, it's clear that he didn't go back and erase and then write again. In other words, he just dictated, he just wrote. And here he's correcting what he just said by adding to it. But it's also interesting that we see here that the doctrine of inspiration does not say that the one who writes is omniscient, that he knows everything. What it says is that what he writes, he will not make an error. And so here we say that God protects him from making an error. He corrects himself, but then he freely admits what? Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. It's a real sweet point in Scripture, isn't it? I don't know. And the Holy Spirit and his inspiration of what Paul writes is not opposed to that declaration of his limited knowledge as a man. So God's Holy Spirit protects the authors of Scripture from error, but he does not make them omniscient. There, it's no limitation to our trust of Scripture for one of its inspired authors to admit limitations in his knowledge or memory. The Apostle Paul speaks perfect truth here when he says that he can't recall something. Which is kind of interesting. All right. Now, I would fail you if I didn't stop here to note the constant practice of the New Testament of the apostolic church in baptizing the households of new believers with those new believers themselves. The principle was the unity of the covenant household under its covenant head. In this case, what is mentioned is the father of the household, the paterfamilia, Stephanus. His household was baptized with him. Do you see that in verse 16? I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Households followed their head of household in fearing and serving the true God. And this is a truth that we need here in America today because of our national and cultural uh, complete bondage to the principle of individualism. There's a, an historic essay in, in American history about the frontier man and the influence the frontier man has had on our culture, all right? And we need to see the Marlboro man, although he's kind of disappeared from the face of our petty morality. We need to see uh, Clint Eastwood. We need to see uh, Bruce Willis. We need to see all these men as being an indication of the degree to which we believe in individualism. We are an individualistic culture. Every war story is like one dude that at the perfect moment becomes a hero. All right? He stands alone, he whoops up, and that's the point of the movie. Here in Scripture, we see that the household of Stephanus was baptized. And we see all through Scripture that households followed their head of household in fearing and in serving the true God and in being named among his people. Uh, let me read, for instance, Acts 10, verse 2, where we're dealing with Cornelius. There we read, Cornelius was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. All right? Cornelius, his household. They feared God. We have a tendency to just remember that Cornelius feared God. No, no, Cornelius and all his household feared God. 
What was the promise made to Cornelius by the angel? Well, in Acts 11:14, we read this concerning the apostle Peter, that the angel promise would come to Cornelius. It says, and he, Peter, this is the angel speaking, he, Peter, shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Now, if you're Baptist, you feel the noose tightening. Trust me. Don't feel it tightening. Just listen to the Bible. All right? You know me by now. I'm benevolent towards Baptists. All right? Some might say I have a superiority complex. (laughs) Some of my best friends are Baptists. It's just a joke. It's just a joke. I really don't think I will offend you if you're a Baptist. I will offend you if you have never embraced the biblical teaching of the covenant. Now listen. The angel promised Cornelius, he, Peter, shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. All right? As the angel promised, households followed their head in believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and being baptized in his name. Why? Well, because under the prior administration of grace, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. And when a man converted to Judaism, he and all the members of his household were circumcised. Again, the principle was the members of the household, under the authority of the household's covenant head, were marked by the sign of the covenant at the same time as their leader. Genesis 17 beginning with verse 9. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Then listen to this. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. One of the things that I had never heard of until I moved to Bloomington was the practice that now I recognize is common all across American Biblical churches, not biblical here, but nevertheless biblical. And that is the practice of allowing people to come to the Lord's Supper without ever being baptized or allowing people to be baptized without them promising to submit to the authority of the church. In other words, they're baptized into some ethereal, wispy thing called the invisible church, the mystical church, the universal church, but they're never baptized into a particular church. And listen, that is the same thing as refusing to be circumcised in the Old Covenant. 
It's refusing the sign of the covenant. It's refusing to be under the authority of our covenant heads. It should never happen. Never happen. God commanded circumcision. God commanded baptism. We're to submit. It doesn't matter how bad the abuse of baptism is around us. We are to be obedient to our Lord who commanded that we be baptized. And so here we see if an uncircumcised man is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If you try to come to the Lord's table and I'm presiding over it, and you say that you've never been baptized, but that you love Jesus, and you have put your faith in him. I will not allow you to come to the Lord's table. We had a woman write this last week. She was upset from years ago when she and her husband came for a couple weeks to this church. And she said that she was upset because they were here worshiping with us, and I told the congregation that they couldn't come to the Lord's table if they were not members of this church. (coughs) Now listen. I've never said such a thing. I don't believe such a thing. And if anybody tried to ever say that here, I'd probably stand up and make a ruckus in the middle of the worship service. It's always our habit to impute the worst motives to the people we oppose. All right? I've never said that. You do not have to be a member of this church to come to the Lord's Supper. We're happy for you to be a member of any Bible-believing church anywhere, as long as it is a Bible-believing church, as long as you've been baptized into a church, as long as you have promised to submit to a particular church. Because it's impossible to be a member of the church without being a member of a church. In other words, when the Bible says to us to submit to those in authority over us, over us in the Lord. (coughs) It's not telling us to engage in some hypothetical submission. You know, if you go to a class and you take a test, there's a very real flesh and blood concrete authority who will grade your papers and your tests by certain concrete rules. The church is the same way. If you're going to come to this table, baptism will bar you from this table if you've refused to be baptized. And if you've refused to be baptized into a particular church, I don't care what church it is, the elders don't care, as long as it's a Bible-believing church, whatever church it is, we're happy to have you at the Lord's table. But you understand the offensive thing to this woman, and I... I am guessing, all right, the offensive thing to her is that anybody would bar anybody from coming to the Lord's table for any reason at any time in any place. And listen, when the Bible says an uncircumcised male is to be cut off, the reason is that God is pleased to mark us with physical signs. And for these physical signs, for these physical signs, To be divisive. And boy, that is so difficult for us. It's so difficult for us to think of 
our Lord Jesus Christ intentionally being divisive. But that's the entire nature of the sacraments. The sacraments are visible partly to divide, to make visible the division. And let me tell you, when you serve communion, you see the division. You don't always know if the division is because somebody rejects the authority of the church, whether somebody is not a believer, whether they haven't been baptized, or whether they woke up that morning and sinned in a way that their conscience doesn't allow them to come to the table. But boy, you feel the division, those of you who are elders and you serve here. You know, every time we serve, (laughs) this morning I served, and there was a young man who didn't take the Lord's Supper, and I'm thinking... How can this be that this young man who's grown up in this church is not taking the Lord's Supper? And then I, I guessed it was probably because he's never professed faith in Jesus Christ and been baptized into his church. That's the nature of the sacraments. And it's either a blessing or it's something you hate, depending upon which side of the division you're on. And postmoderns hate distinctions and division. Hate them. The Super Bowls are a great unitive sacrament. We can't have Tim Tebow dividing us at the moment of our high altar. I mean, isn't that what everybody's been saying? How could you turn the Super Bowl into a moment of division? Well, uh, try uh, on the one hand the Saints and on the other hand the Colts. (laughs) Well, yeah, 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 yeah. But we all know that... Everybody's a winner. Thompson, the guy that was running for president until we found out what he was like. Remember him? He issued a statement yesterday that Barack, our president Obama has decided that we should decide the Super Bowl today by, uh, by, by dialogue and negotiation. It's a joke. You know? Years ago, when Taylor was younger and playing soccer, you know, we would hear about these leagues where the rules of the league were that you never kept score, and Taylor's comment under, under voice was to say, the kids know the score. <laughs> the sacraments are intended to divide. There are winners and losers here eternally. And on one side are those who belong to Jesus Christ, who have been marked with the sign of the covenant and eat his body and drink his blood. On the other side are those who defy the living God and will be cast into hell. The purpose of the sacraments is to make that division clear. And so we see... The sign of the covenant in the New Testament church is not circumcision, but it's baptism. And that when baptism was given, it was given to households, the household of Stephanus. Now, immediately you say, well, what about Crispus and Gaius? Weren't they the heads of households? Maybe not. Or maybe their households were far away at the time of their baptisms. Or maybe their households were baptized, but it doesn't mention it in the text because it was assumed. 
We don't know. But what we do know is all through Scripture, the promise of the covenant is given to our children. And the approach to God in faith extends from the covenant head to the household. This is a difficult thing for those of us born and raised in these United States to recognize and embrace. The head of the household is that. The head of the household. And those under his authority are to repent and believe and be baptized with him. And not to do so is to rebel against all authority, which is like the sin of divination. That's what rebellion is, according to Scripture. Who was in these households? Well, certainly the head of the household's wife. She repented and believed and was baptized. And certainly the head of the household's servants. They repented and believed and were baptized. And certainly the head of the household's children. They repented and believed and were baptized. Who else is a part of a household under the head of the household's authority than his wife, his servants, and his children? Wasn't talking about their pets. But those children, did they include infants incapable of expressing their repentance and faith because of their age? And that's where we disagree. (laughs) Okay? I say yeah. Many of you say no. And that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) But what we must not disagree over is the application of the sign of the covenant to households that's taught and practiced throughout the word of God. God makes his covenant with a man and his household, not simply with individuals. And when a head of household repents, believes, and is baptized, we see the members of his household believing and being baptized also. Praise God for his promise that he will be our God and the God of our children. After us, praise God that he has declared his kindness and mercy and grace to a thousand generations. And so we read in first Chronicles, remember his wonderful deeds, which he has done, his marvels and judgments from his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servants, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. He also confirmed it to Jacob as a statute. To Israel as an Everlasting covenant. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Genesis six eighteen. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark... I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Genesis 9, 9, again to know. And now behold, says God, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. 
And so we see in Acts the same promise to households under their covenant heads and the same entry into the covenant and being marked with the sign of the covenant. Take, for instance, this promise of Peter on the day of Pentecost. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And following in the same pattern is this account of the Philippian jailer and his household. He, the Philippian jailer, called for lights, rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized all by himself. (laughs) It's not what it says. It says he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. You know, we hate authority. We hate it. And the idea that because a father steps forward in faith and repentance into the blood of Jesus Christ, that his whole family follows him. Oh, it just just sets our teeth on edge. It sets father's teeth on edge because we don't want that responsibility over anyone. And it sets wives' teeth on edge because... I'll just leave that one alone today. All right. And it sets children's teeth on edge because their whole life is given over to rebellion and to mincing and and posturing and doing anything they can to escape being submissive to their father and their mother. Oh, man. Ooh, notice my eye contact today. Listen. If you have a godly father... And you do not honor him. You have a godly set of parents. You have a godly husband. And you do not honor their God. You have no place in their home. You are a usurper because that household belongs to Jesus Christ. Not because your dad's on an ego trip. I guarantee you, he hates the responsibility. He knows he's a sinner better than you'll ever know it. All of the Western world is escaping responsibility for souls. And it starts in the home with fathers. Why do you think every profile I read about major artists or comedians in the New Yorker, every single one, I know what I'm going to run into before the profile is over. And what is it? It's a combination of father hatred and father love and father hunger. Explicit. Because they've grown up with fathers who will not love their children by leading them and taking responsibility for them. If you live in a covenant household and you do not serve 
your father, your husband's God. You are a usurper. And whether or not you have been baptized, the day will come when God will judge you for breaking the covenant of your head. And you might get away with it in this world. And if there's a divorce, the social welfare people might give custody to the party of that marriage that doesn't honor God because they look at the one that honors God as being perverted. You understand what I'm saying? It may be that you are able to posture yourself in such a way that you look dignified, respectable by rejecting your father's God. But be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a little boy, a young man, a teenager, an adolescent sows, that shall he also reap. And the one who sows to his sinful nature, from his sinful nature will reap destruction. In other words, it doesn't matter whether you think you're an individual. It doesn't matter if you deny God's corporate working. If it doesn't matter if you deny the covenant. If you belong to a father who worships God, that God is your God. If it's the true God. And one day you will give an accounting for how you have despised the riches of the covenant that you've been born into. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Listen. <laughs> if you know anything about me, you know that the day came when I, as a young man, was in my father's home and my sweet, kind, loving, gentle father, who had already had three sons die, and now I'm the next one. And I'm doing drugs, right? I'm not honoring God. And what do you think my father wants to do? Do you think my father wants to kick me out of his home? He's lost three sons to death. And I'm the next one. And he puts me out of the home. What am I going to be doing? He knows very well what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be off hitchhiking, doing drugs, doing who knows what. And my life is safer in his house than it is out of his house. Do you understand that? My father comes to me one Saturday morning on the stairway upstairs. And he says, Tim, I want to talk to you a second. And I turn around. He looks at me and he says, Tim, he said, you are not honoring God. You may not live in my household. You were to leave. I couldn't believe it. Very quiet. I knew what that cost him. I knew he would rather do anything than what he had just done. There's no must, no fuss. I left. And now it's my consistent testimony. My father never loved me as much as that moment. <laughs> and that moment started my return to Jesus Christ. Because I, I was blessed with a covenant head who would not compromise. If he had to choose between his own flesh and blood and his God, it was clear it was his God. And that's my father. And that's why I'm preaching to you. Because God used the faith of my covenant head to fulfill the promise of the covenant. My father commanded me to keep the covenant. And the day came when, by God's grace, I began to. Okay? 
Now, I realize, and I knew this was going to happen, that I haven't gotten into the subject of this sermon. But, you know, you look at who's here, and then you preach to us. And so I don't know what I'm going to do because I, 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 I have a problem because the first service I did get to what the subject of the sermon was. But we've had this problem before. Whoa, I can't do that when I have water in here. Yikes. <laughs> um, number one, if you're Baptist, don't give up covenant headship, covenant succession. Don't give up the promises. Don't give them up. They belong to you. They don't belong to Presbyterians. You'll have Presbyterians obnoxiously telling you that you can't believe in the covenant if you don't believe in infant baptism. It's bunk. All right? You don't have to be foolishly inconsistent. <laughs> okay? Well, you, you don't understand what I meant by that, but it, it was a generous statement, not a nasty statement. Claim the covenant promises for your children. While you have a little one in your womb, begin to pray that God will fulfill his covenant promises with your child, number one. Number two, look for the day when the covenant sign will be placed on your precious children. You may differ with me and wait until they profess faith personally in Jesus Christ. But pray for that day. Number three, I don't care how old your child was baptized, was when he was baptized, or she. It doesn't matter. The fact is that God, in his sovereign will, does not connect baptism with salvation in such a way that it's a tit-for-tat construction. You know, it's not one plus one equals two. And there are many covenant children who have grown up and have had the sign of the covenant applied to them who are Esau's. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Esau was a child of the covenant. Esau had the covenant sign applied to him. But did you hear, when I read that list, did you hear the name that was missing? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Where's Esau? He wasn't there. And then, Israel. Do not presume that God is in a box and that the firstborn must have all the inheritance and that the last must be last and the first must be first. Remember, if you're a Gentile, that you are grafted in to the tree. Number four, three, five, whatever it is. If God has given you the glorious privilege of having a man of God as your father, or if it's a fatherless home like Lydia's, a woman of God as your federal head, I say to you, do not despise this precious gift. And you say, yeah, but my father is obnoxious and my, <laughs> my Lydia is really snotty. And I say, hey, you know, how about that guy Jacob? 
How about David? Every father on this earth is only the palest reflection of the Father God from whom all fatherhood gets its name. But you have a precious gift from God. And you should treasure it. And if you do not honor your father, I might be very nice to you. But God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. And number five or six or seven. If you don't have any covenant head who honors God, you are that covenant head. And the line starts here. You can't make excuses. <laughs> well, I'm a bad covenant head because I didn't have a covenant head. Uh-uh, uh-uh, ain't going to cut it. <laughs> I have some benefits from having the dad I did, and many of you have the same. But if you're the first in the thousand generations, or if you're the first after five generations or ten were covenant breakers, you know, you can go back and find believers in your path. You are the first, and you have an obligation to be the head of your household, honoring God, raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And if you feel like you're absolutely incapable of doing that, you're only experiencing what every father before you has felt. We don't do any of this stuff in our strength. None of us who do it are able to do it on our own. We aren't able to begin to do it on our own. We do it through God's power given to us through the Holy Spirit. And so pray. Pray desperately that God will make you into a faithful, covenant-keeping father, husband, patriarch, or matriarch, Lydia. Okay. And if you're having trouble, come to the elders, the tightest two women, come to the pastors. We're here to help you be covenant heads. All right? We're here to help you. We're here to pray for you. We're here to comfort you when you fail. We're here to commend you when you do well. Okay? Let's pray.